diplomats and the media can have a rich symbiotic relationship. Both hunger for information and for its interpretation. Both, however much evidence may appear to stack up to the contrary, are human beings. Hi there, this is Lee Turner. Thanks very much for downloading this episode of Writing Books and Stories. Today I'm not broadcasting as usual from Vienna, I'm broadcasting from London, and I don't have my microphone and I don't have my jingles, which are all on the other computer I have over there. So this may not have the usual quality that you're used to, but bear with me and let's see how we can do. If you'd like to read the blog post on which this podcast is based, you can find the link in the instructions for this podcast or just go along to my rleeturner.com blog and you'll find this post there. It's called Diplomacy and the Media. So what is it that diplomats should know about the media and vice versa? In my opinion, diplomats and media should have a really good relationship, but they don't always. And I think it is important for diplomats to study the media and try and build up the skills they need to interact effectively with it. This podcast is a sketch of a chapter from my forthcoming book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to Diplomacy. It's going to be a lot of fun. If you like the podcast, do subscribe to the podcast series or go along and subscribe to the blog. I actually gave my first TV interview in August 1994. I and a colleague had flown into Khabarovsk near the Chinese border in eastern Siberia from Niigata in Japan. We'd gone that rather weird route via Tokyo and Niigata in order to try and minimise the time we had to spend on the Russian airlines, which in those days were eye-wateringly dangerous. So we visited Khabarovsk and we went to see various local businessmen and officials. Um, and I had some very bad vodka, some Sama Ugond, some homemade vodka, on the river Amur on a boat trip. And I was invited to go off bear hunting in the woods for $1,600 a week, but declined that offer. So after a good visit to Khabarovsk, my colleague and I climbed on board the Trans-Siberian Railway to make the 14-hour overnight rail trip to Vladivostok. Now, in early 1990s Russia, the railway system was actually one of the few things that really worked reliably. So our train from Khabarovsk rolled into the home of the Russian Pacific Fleet, Vladivostok, bang on time. Now, Vladivostok had only recently been opened up to foreigners, and when rather bleary-eyed and unshaven, I descended from the carriage, I found myself surrounded by journalists and TV cameras. Everybody from the local private TV stations wanted to have Russian language interviews with this strange British diplomat who was coming. 
and although it was first thing in the morning and I was a bit groggy, I did my inadequate best. Later on, I saw the results of these interviews broadcast, and I was delighted to see that although I thought I'd been speaking pretty naff Russian, they had somehow excised or pasted over the worst of my mistakes. So what did I learn from this experience? The first thing was that as a junior diplomat, you should seize every opportunity you can to do live interviews. It's a kind of sandbox. The more junior you, you are and the further you are from headquarters, the less chance there is that any real screw-ups will have repercussions. The second thing I learned was that interviews are always a two-way street. My dawn efforts arriving in Vladivostok actually sparked interest in the city and the fact that we were there. And up to that point, we'd not been able to get a meeting with the rather controversial governor of the Far East region, a guy called Yevgeny Nazdratyenko. But after doing the interview, suddenly the office got back to us and we got our meeting with him. Finally, I was struck by the way they edited my work. I was struck by the fact that most sensible journalists actually want to try and make their interviewee look good. If your interviewee comes across as a total idiot, why are you interviewing them? One of the best tips I ever had on doing interviews was always to ask your interviewer before the interview starts what question they're going to start with or what the thrust of their questions is going to be. And if they've got any sense, they'll give you a few clues. I have met some kind of opinionated interviewers who say, no, no, I want it to be natural. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to ask you. And then they try and catch you out. Um, but in my view, that's not great journalism and it doesn't really make much sense. So it's always worth asking what the interviewer is going to ask you about. So at this time in Russia, in the early 1990s, visits to zones of Russia previously off limits to diplomats often generated disproportionate media coverage. After my first visit to Vladivostok in June 1993, at the head of a little delegation, uh, when local journalists pre pressed us to tell them what intelligence we were collecting. The Russian army newspaper, Red Star, published a report headlined, Vladivostok becomes a mecca for foreign delegations. When I visited Tatarstan in 1994, the Tatarstan News published a lengthy interview with me, headed, Lee Turner says the economy of Tatarstan is stable. Or after my visit to Sakhalin in, uh, a year later, the English language Sakhalin News ran a front page headline with a rather flattering picture of me. You can see it on the blog, headlined, Lee Turner, development of Russian economy surpasses statistics. I thought that was a great headline because it was certainly true one way or another. If you get a chance to experiment with local media as a junior diplomat, you should always take up that opportunity because it's a great way to build your skills. 
diplomats and the media can have a rich symbiotic relationship. Both hunger for information and want to interpret it properly. Both, however much evidence may appear to stack up to the contrary, are actually human beings. That interdependence was perhaps most clear to me in Moscow in the early 1990s, where diplomats and journalists were both really struggling to make sense of the chaos that was breaking out as communism and authoritarianism collapsed and, it turned out later, regrouped. The ambassador used to have lunches with the UK press corps in the lovely old sugar baron's mansion that was the residence and was also the embassy opposite the Kremlin. The embassy has moved now. At one such event, many speakers were complaining that the communists were doing rather well and that although they'd been kicked out of power in 1991, they might actually win the forthcoming elections. I remember John Kampfner, who was then the Moscow correspondent of the Daily Telegraph, pointing out that this system was called democracy. The worst press behaviour I ever witnessed, perhaps prophetically, came during the 1986 visit to Vienna of the Prince and Princess of Wales. I was responsible for handling the media, and I rode my bike in my black tie to the evening banquet at the City Hall. My job was to try and keep the UK and the Austrian press corps under control and happy, but I was completely unsuccessful because what actually happened was there was a fixed press point where the camera people were supposed to gather and an actual fist fight broke out amongst the photographers between those with a good camera position to take pictures of the Princess of Wales and those less fortunate. A jacket was torn. If you look at the blog, you can see a rather nice picture of me photobombing a photo opportunity for the Princess of Wales with the Vienna Boys Choir. I also remember meeting the rather legendary journalist Hella Pick, who came to Vienna on one occasion, and she wanted me to smuggle her into the ambassador's residence so that she could use the telephone. And I said, well, I, even I can't get inside the ambassador's residence. I've never been in. And she got very angry with me and said I was being very unhelpful. So very good experience for me. If I'd given my first ever TV interview in the early 1990s, I'd actually given my first ever radio interview on the 12th of November 1984, a few weeks after I arrived in Vienna on my very first overseas posting. I'd just been out of the embassy to buy my lunchtime Belegtes Brot, a kind of open sandwich, when a bomb exploded in the entrance of the consulate. I was just round the corner up the street. In those days, there were no bomb barriers or even controls on the door for people who wanted to walk into the consulate, so anyone could walk in, and somebody did walk in, and plant a pressure cooker bomb in the entrance, which went off, but fortunately it didn't explode properly. Only the detonator exploded, and nobody was injured. The local English language Blue Danube radio came to interview me that afternoon. I remember them asking me who I thought might be behind the attack. 
Now, I had, I had no idea who'd been behind the attack, so I said I couldn't speculate on that. So the interview, interviewer leaned forward and she said, so, yeah, but off the record, who do you think it might have been? And I said the same thing. I couldn't possibly say who it might have been. And I was very struck that when they came to transmit the interview, this second question about off the record had been snipped out. It, it had disappeared. And it was a really good reminder of the fact that whatever you say can be edited afterwards. So be careful what you say and try and construct your sentences in such a way that they can't easily be cut apart and re-edited. So if I were to draw a mini lesson from this part of the post, I would say always choose your words carefully and be nice to the interviewer and the camera person if there is a camera person there, because the way they cut things afterwards can make you look good or can make you look bad. I think all diplomats should study the practice of journalism. You should seize every opportunity you can to train in interview techniques. Wherever you're posted, there's bound to be some kind of disaster. And as a potential contact point for the media, or if you're more senior, perhaps a crisis leader, for every part, kind of tragedy, you will sleep better once you have clear in your mind the basic building blocks of a press statement or a response to media inquiries. The well-known formula is, first of all, pity for the victims, praise for the first responders, and a promise to help. Pity, praise, and promise. It may sound a bit mechanical, but when you're in the middle of chaos, that structure can really help. Other tips from, as I mentioned, acknowledging the existence of the camera team, as well as the interviewer, through to not touching your face during an interview, to grounding your feet on the floor, can all be transformative. So if there's a lesson here, it's really take that media training. There's a further question here, which is whether a diplomat should go a step further and proactively create media content. For me, it's a bit of a personal decision, but it will be useful to you to have a good understanding of the mechanics of writing a newspaper article or blog. Because if you're writing a short piece of prose or a little newspaper article or a blog, it'll be really good to know exactly how to do that. The formula is having a, a lead or an instrumental lead, then a nut graph, then the body of the article, and then a kicker or a cosmic kicker. These are really useful techniques to know about. You can read more about them on my blog. I was lucky enough actually to write for the Financial Times as a stringer, so that's an occasional contributor from 2003 to 2006 when I was in Berlin. And, I mean, not many diplomats will want to go that far, but on the other hand, the experience was invaluable and helped to shape my subsequent career. Many diplomats these days do build a social media profile. And a bit like learning a language, doing social media work comes more naturally to some people than to others. 
not everyone feels comfortable with the investment of time and the loss of privacy and the constant quest for content that comes with a commitment to Facebook or LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, maybe all of them, or whatever platform comes next. My slight suspicion is that the high tide of tweeting and blogging ambassadors and diplomats was in the noughties or the 2010s, and that these days foreign offices, including the British Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, are becoming a bit more antsy and anxious about encouraging diplomats to blog and tweet because they may go off message. By contrast, when I was ambassador in Kiev from 2008 to 2012, we were really encouraged to do blogging. And when I was in Istanbul from 2012 to 2016, we were very much encouraged to do Twitter and to get out there and get our message out. But in both postings, when I was briefing my successor, I did say, think carefully about the pros and cons of social media before you get in too deep. So if there's an overall lesson from this on social media, I would say for a diplomat, social media can be valuable, but it's only one communications tool amongst many, from a chat over coffee to a speech or a cocktail party, or if you're lucky, an evening drinking beer with a minister, uh, a journalist, or an artist, all of which may be great ways of getting your message across. So social media is really important, but it's not the only thing, and you should keep hold of traditional means of spreading your messages as well. So that's just about all on this blog. If you enjoy this stuff and would like to read a bit more, do have a look on my website, and I've got several dozen articles that I wrote for the Financial Times and the Boston Globe uh, on my rleeturner.com website, which you'd be very welcome to have a look at. So that's all from me for now. As I say, no jingles on this uh, podcast today because I'm doing it just on my laptop without a proper microphone. As I say, sorry for the low quality of the sound and everything, but I thought a low quality sound podcast was better than no podcast at all. So here we are. Thank you very much for listening and do have a look at my blog. Bye for now.